You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. In 1968, a chemist at the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company, you know, 3M, named Dr. Spencer Silver, was attempting to create a super strong adhesive. He failed. He managed to create a super weak adhesive that could only hold things together temporarily. That was a characteristic there was not a lot of demand for. So the chemical went onto a shelf, and there it stayed for six years until a colleague needed to mark his hymnal. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Plastic, the material of a thousand uses, the blessing and curse of our modern world. All the conveniences you could wish for with oodles of monkey's paw style consequences. Substances that could be classified as plastics have been in use for thousands of years, from rubber balls made from tree sap in Central America to the protective coating shellac, which is made from the secretions of the lac beetle. They did their jobs, but, you know, not great. The raw materials were usually difficult to obtain or process, which meant they were expensive, so the products made from them were rare and only accessible to a select few. They also tended to have short, useful lives or were susceptible to temperature changes and humidity. The Industrial Revolution, you may have heard of it, it was in all the papers, created huge demand for new materials, both natural and synthetic, like celluloid, made from plant cellulose and camphor, and galilith, made of milk protein and formaldehyde. Then along came Belgian chemist Leo Bakeland. In 1907, Bakeland already had a wildly successful product under his belt, the first fiber-based photographic paper, and he was on a mission to create a replacement for shellac. Making shellac requires going to the trees where swarms of little red lac beetles are laying eggs and sucking up sap until they burst. I'm barely being hyperbolic here. Indigenous people call it the feast of death. As the beetles excrete the leavings of the sap, it forms a coating over the entire swarm, which is scraped up, bugs and all, and taken for refining. In addition to obvious things like woodworking, Shellac is also used, even in the modern day, in candy making. So my vegan, kosher, and halal friends, beware. In Bakeland's attempt to improve upon nature, he heated a mixture of formaldehyde and phenol, or coal tar, a waste product, which will appear in the script later. Rather than making a lacquer, he inadvertently created a polymer that didn't melt under heat and stress. He applied for a patent for his new compound, polyoxybenzylmethyl and glycolanhydride. And yes, I got that in one take. Not the first take, but still one take that counts. 
order your voiceover services today at moxielabouche.com. Bakeland humbly named this new product Bakelite. This new thermosetting plastic went like a house on fire. It could be, and was, used for everything, from phones to dinner plates to toys to jewelry. It was also a boon to the emerging automotive and electrical industries because it was an effective insulator. Apart from being the first proper modern plastic, it is also the first synthetic material to lean into being a synthetic material, rather than trying to look or act like a natural product. It was lightweight, durable, and could be molded into nearly any shape you could think of, in nearly any color or pattern you wanted. It also looked sleek and modern, the Apple aesthetic of its day. Bakelite introduced plastics to the fashion world, to be followed by nylon, polyester, spandex, and more. These plastics have inspired fashion designers to do more with less. More choices, creativity, and durability with less material, weight, wrinkles, and expense. All of this to avoid bug secretions. Bonus fact, the phrase better living through chemistry is a variant of a DuPont advertising slogan, better things for better living through chemistry. DuPont adopted the slogan in 1935 and used it until 1982 when they dropped the through chemistry part. If you break that Bakelite bangle that you bought at the vintage shop because it was so tacky it kind of came all the way back around to being cool, what are you going to stick it back together with? Whether you think it's crazy or super, you're going to need glue. A glue with both an accidental discovery and a famous accidentally discovered use case. Cyanoacrylate glue, or CA glue if you're pressed for time, or California glue if you've been watching the Shop Time channel on YouTube like we do. It was not supposed to be an adhesive of any kind. Cyanoacrylate was discovered in 1942 by Dr. Harry Coover. Like a lot of people in the early 40s, Coover was working for the war effort. A prolific inventor who would eventually hold over 460 patents, Coover was trying to make clear plastic lenses for gun sights. While working with various chemicals, Coover and his team discovered one formulation that came out extremely sticky. This was not ideal. The chemicals would also polymerize in the presence of moisture, causing anything made with cyanoacrylate to be covered in a white film, and anything that touched the surface stuck to it immediately, making it even less good in the field. Failing to be what it was needed to be, cyanoacrylate was put on a shelf and the team moved on. But cyanoacrylate wasn't completely forgotten. Nine years later, now working at Eastman Kodak, Dr. Coover was the head of a team tasked with developing a heat-resistant polymer for jet canopies. One researcher went back to formulas of days past and spread some ethyl cyanoacrylate between a pair of refractometer prisms and was surprised to find them proper stuck together. This time, being sticky worked in CA's favor. As testing went on, Coover realized the great potential of an adhesive that would quickly bond to a variety of materials, and all it needed to activate was a little bit of water, such as the moisture on your breath when you blow on it. 
It took another seven years of tinkering and, I'm assuming, market research and other such nonsense, but in 1958, Eastman Kodak launched Superglue, using the thoroughly underwhelming name Eastman No. 910. Eastman No. 910 was licensed to the Loctite Company, who rebranded it as Loctite Quickset 404, before making their own version called Superbonder. By the 1970s, everybody and their sainted brother was making CA glue, and Superglue soon became a genericized name. Wait a minute there, Moxie, you're saying. Everyone knows Superglue was made during World War II as a battlefield wound closure. Sorry, love. While CA glue has been, and if you're my household, still is used for closing minor wounds like paper cuts, it wasn't pressed into surface as a field adhesive until well after World War II was over. It did see a lot of use in first aid during the Vietnam conflict, or as the Vietnamese call it, the American War. While superglue can help with minor wounds, it can also cause them. If you put CA on cotton or wool, it creates a rapid exothermic chemical reaction that releases enough heat to cause minor burns. So don't do that, no matter what you see on 5-Minute Crafts. On the flip side, if you find yourself in a Bear grills, naked and afraid castaway sort of situation, and just so happen to have a tube of superglue and cotton ball or wool socks, adding a bunch of glue can generate enough heat to start a fire. Handy thing, superglue. But if you don't binge forensic files every Friday like I do, and sadly I have exhausted Netflix's supply, you might not know about its most interesting use in solving crimes. That's a slight exaggeration, but superglue definitely plays a part. CA can make fingerprints easier to find, and that talent was found by accident. In the 1970s, workers in a Japanese factory producing cyanoacrylate noticed that their fingerprints were everywhere, like everywhere, and they were really distinct. The fumes from the cyanoacrylate react to the ridiculously tiny amount of moisture in fingerprints on non-porous surfaces. It not only makes the fingerprints more visible, but creates a thin shell on the ridge detail to preserve them. How that information got to the Tokyo National Crime Lab, I cannot say, but members of the U.S. Army CID lab in Japan brought the idea home with them in the late 70s. Early experiments used things like fish tanks and garbage bags as fuming chambers, but today it's a little more bespoke. Heat accelerates the process, and in the early days, they just used the warming base from a coffee pot. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. 
We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Let's take a quick break from accidental discoveries to talk about some intentional kindness. That being the people who leave reviews for the podcast and the Your Brain on Facts book. Sadly, we are again down to our very last book review. So if you have an opportunity to review it on Amazon or Goodreads, which, yes, I know is the same company, it's greatly appreciated because, you know, user reviews are everything these days. And this one comes from Nikki, who gave it five stars and just said, perfect for my grandson. And I hope he's enjoying it. On the podcast review side of things, we have two reviews this week. Over on the Apple Podcast app, Rook Killjoy said, Moxie does a fantastic job giving hella cool facts in an interesting way and with the most soothing voice. You cannot get bored listening to Wyboff. You rock, Moxie. You are the best, and thanks for all you do. Except for maybe that one particular cheese bit. Yep, people do not like the Kasumarzu. And thank you so much, awesomely named Rook Killjoy. Now, if your podcast listening app doesn't really have a function for leaving reviews, no worries. Pop over to podchaser.com, which is like IMDB for podcasts. And that's where D.A. Clink, Doc Clink, sorry about that, left this review. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and this is one of the best. Moxie has a great voice and even greater attention to detail. Beautiful facts, with sources, delivered in a lively and entertaining way. Never boring or dry. I could, and have, listened to her all day. Subscribe early, subscribe often. Thank you so much, Dick Clink. Especially for noticing the sources, because what good is research without citations? And if you're looking for something a little less researchy to listen to, you've got to check out the podcast Quantum Week. I mean, it's named for one of the best TV shows ever, so that's a big point in their favor right off the bat. It's a pop culture podcast where they leap into a random week from a random year from the lifespan of the hosts, which coincidentally is the exact same as my lifespan to talk about the hit movies and music from that week. Maybe you'll hear about Billy Madison and Hold My Hand, or E.T. and Jack and Diane, which, bonus fact, was originally written as a tale of interracial love. Join hosts Matt and Chris by going to quantum-week.com or looking for Quantum Week on your podcast player of choice. And hang on after the show for a promo from another great show that I'll actually be doing a crossover with soon. 
You can also find Quantum Week and any sponsors of the show at yourbrainonfacts.com slash offers. You've probably heard the statistic that the deadliest animal in the world is the mosquito. By one count, mosquito-borne illnesses have killed half the people who have ever lived. The grand dame of them all is malaria, and the best medicine we had for it for the longest time was quinine, a drug derived from the chincona tree of South America. Annoyingly, a lot of listicles of accidental discoveries and inventions that I looked at in my research listed quinine. It annoyed me because they acted like white colonizers just happened across it, completely ignoring how the indigenous people had been using it to treat fevers, some of which were malaria, for centuries. In the mid-19th century, the British Empire noticed a bunch of countries that white people weren't running, so they decided, better fix that. There they encountered understandable resentment, spices they wouldn't use once they got back home, and malaria-carrying mosquitoes. The need for quinine was great. They could get some from tonic water, which is how the gin and tonic became the second most British drink. But on the whole, more quinine was needed than could be imported. They needed to be able to make quinine. Enter 18-year-old student William Henry Perkin. Over Easter break in 1856, Perkin made use of the small laboratory of his professor's house in London to oxidize the organic compound aniline to try to create quinine. If you're following the theme of today's episode, and I'm sure you are, my clever little sausages, Perkin did not succeed in making quinine. All he got was some black gunk in the bottom of the beaker. When he tried to clean the beaker with alcohol, the material changed to a purplish hue. Without intending to do so, Perkin had made the world's first synthetic dye. Blind luck was definitely a factor, but credit must be given to Perkin's observantness and persistence. With the help of his professor and his brother, he conducted new experiments to perfect his method for making the dye, which he patented that summer. It's been called aniline purple, purple aniline, or Perkin's mallow, the molecule, science would discover later, is 3-amino-2-9-dimethyl-5-phenyl-7-p-tolilamino-phenzamine acetate. Perkin called it mauvine. Most of us call it mauve. Perkin also had a great entrepreneurial spirit. He realized that this happy accident could replace the purple dyes that hadn't changed since Roman times, when togas were dyed with Tyrian purple made from the shells of tens of thousands of eensy-weensy sea snails. Market Movine he would, and Market Movine he did. Within a few years, mauve garments were everywhere, especially in fashion hotspots like London and Paris. It got a major boost when Queen Victoria appeared at the Royal Exhibition in 1862 in a long mauve gown. Other chemists worked out what Perkin had done, and within five years, there were 28 dye factories making mauve, including the German company BASF, which is still around today. You may have seen one of their TV commercials. High production values, no clear impression of what the company actually does. Meanwhile, the still young chemist undertook intense research on dyes, inks, and paints, as well as perfecting Comarin, one of the first synthetic perfumes. 
by the age of 21. And try not to think too much about what you were doing at age 21. William Perkin had made himself a millionaire. And at 36, he retired to devote himself exclusively to research in organic chemistry. As Simon Garfield, author of the book Mauve, explains, Perkins' mauve not only meant a revolution in the dye industry, but also in medicine. His works with artificial dyes were essential so that Walter Fleming could color cells and study chromosomes under a microscope. They helped Robert Koch, Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1905, discover the bacillus responsible for tuberculosis after dyeing the sputum of a patient. What's more, the development of Perkins' synthetic dyes was crucial to the studies of Paul Elric, Nobel Prize Medicine 1908, and a pioneer in chemotherapy. All this because a clever, unsupervised teenager cleaned a failed experiment with some alcohol. Perkin created the world's first synthetic dye, and it got me wondering, or not really, I just needed a segue, have any of my listeners ever worked on creating a board game or a video game? I'd like to maybe try to make a Your Brain on Facts game, you know, in addition to the Guinness World Record thing I've got going on and all the other nonsense, but I don't really know where you start with the process. So if anyone has experience in that and would like to work with me on this project, please hit me up on the social media, Facebook and Instagram.com slash Your Brain on Facts and Twitter at Brain on Facts Pod. Admittedly, a lot of people would have jumped 30 right there thinking I was going into another ad break. If you'd like to avoid the ad breaks altogether, the easiest way is to support the show at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Just like our newest members, Jesse, OJ, Stefan, Anna, Christina, Lisa, David, and Karen. The next bonus mini episode, of which there are, I think, 45 or so at this point, is about Cotard syndrome, also called walking corpse syndrome. And whether you've heard of it or not, you definitely want to check that one out. Some discoveries are made while practicing good science in the cause of finding something new. Some discoveries are made through are-you-kidding-me-with-this-nonsense levels of lab safety recklessness, like having Dee Dee running Dexter's lab. The questionable practices at issue belong to one Constantine Falberg, and I will say that, in his defense, the discovery he's famous for making was made in 1879, when doctors were still debating germ theory, there were no laws against patent medicine and snake oil, and you could sell warming blankets that you'd treated with radium. Falberg was working for the H.W. Perot Company when he was tasked with testing the purity of a shipment of sugar impounded by the U.S. government. He tested the sugar and did whatever else was on his checklist for the day, except for one key thing. It seems that at no point in the process did he wash his hands. Falberg was home having supper when he noticed his food tasted sweet, incredibly sweet. At first, he blamed the bread, but he was about a century before American bread would be chock-a-block with sugar. Bonus fact on that, the courts in Ireland have declared that the bread at Subway contains too much sugar to be legally classified as bread, and therefore, it is a confection. Falberg came to the conclusion that he must have gotten something on his hands at work that got transferred onto his bread. 
Rather than panicking, inducing vomiting, calling a doctor, or even being the slightest bit concerned, he was over the moon about it. But the thing is, his lab safety being what it was, he didn't know which of the many chemicals he'd been working with it could have been. So he went back to the lab and began tasting all of the chemicals on his desk. We'll call him a runner-up for the Physician Test Thyself section of the Your Brain on Facts book. By the way, have you seen the Can I Lick the Science meme? It's a favorite of mine. I'll post it in the Facebook group and on the subreddit, both of which you can use to hang out with your fellow brainiacs and you can reach through yourbrainonfacts.com social. Eventually, and without flat-out poisoning himself, Falberg managed to find the sweetness in a beaker filled with sulfobenzoic acid, phosphorus chloride, and ammonia. This intimidating-sounding mix had boiled over, creating benzoic sulfonide, a compound Falberg was familiar with but had never thought to stick in his mouth, because why would you? Falberg rushed to write up a paper, with Ira Remsen, the supervisor of the lab, as co-author, describing the compound and the methods of creating it. Both men were listed as the compound's creators, but after realizing the compound's massive commercial potential, Falberg changed his mind about sharing credit and patented the substance in 1886, listing himself as the sole creator of saccharin. What did Ramson think of that? Falberg is a scoundrel. It nauseates me to hear my name mentioned in the same breath with him. It's not clear where the name saccharin came from, but Falberg's discovery, the first artificial sweetener, was fairly successful as soon as it hit the market. But its big moment came in World War I, when rationing and shortages threatened our collective sweet tooth. Saccharin was marketed as non-fattening. The body doesn't actually metabolize saccharin, meaning it has no caloric or nutritional value. Now, let's talk cancer. Listeners of a certain age will remember buying a pack of gum sweetened with saccharin with a surprisingly cigarette pack-like warning on it. Use of this product may be hazardous to your health. This product contains saccharin, which has been determined to cause cancer in laboratory animals. It's almost the exact same warning they put on things like gasoline and engine degreaser. How is it legal to sell it as a food? Starting in the 1970s and as recently as a little over a decade ago, the widespread belief was that saccharin caused cancer. This was despite the fact that in 1974, the National Academy of Sciences performed a review of all the studies done on saccharin and determined that there was no sound evidence that saccharin was a carcinogen, and that the only studies that claimed to show it were flawed or ambiguous in their results. One particularly flawed study from the 70s was almost the final nail in saccharin's coffin. The researchers found that saccharin could lead to bladder cancer in rats. This spurred the Saccharin Study and Labeling Act of 1977, which managed to thwart efforts to ban saccharin outright instead simply getting it a severe warning label. The rats in the study did indeed have a high rate of bladder tumors. However, there were two major problems. One, the amount of saccharin that the rats consumed would be equivalent to a human being drinking a bathtub's worth of it on a regular basis. 
And the main underlying problem of a lot of medical research is simply that mice and rats are not human beings. The deal with the rats was the specific attributes of their urine, high pH, high proteins, and high calcium phosphate, combining with undigested saccharin, causing microcrystals to form in their bladders. These led to damage of the bladder lining, which over time led to tumor formation. Once the exact cause of the tumors was determined, exhaustive tests were done to see if the same thing was happening with primates. In the end, the results came up completely negative. No other species saw microcrystals forming. Thanks to this, in 2000, saccharin was removed from the U.S. National Toxicology Program's list of substances that might cause cancer. The next year, both the U.S. Food and Drug Administration and the notoriously label-prone state of California took saccharin from their cancer-causing lists as well. In 2010, the EPA concurred, stating that saccharin is no longer considered a potential hazard to human health. I am not certain why the EPA had an opinion about it, but we appreciate them doing the right thing. Now, the 70s wasn't the first time the compound had come under fire. A much earlier and equally unfounded panic occurred as a result of the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, which you may remember from the episode Blue Plate Special. Harvey Wiley, the director of the Bureau of Chemistry for the USDA, considered saccharin inferior to sugar, no argument there, and lobbied hard against it, even going so far as telling President Theodore Roosevelt that, quote, "...everyone who ate that sweet corn was deceived. He thought he was eating sugar, when in point of fact, he was eating a coal tar product, totally devoid of food value and extremely injurious to health." While he got the totally devoid of food value part correct, the injurious to health part wasn't backed by any vetted evidence at the time, or since. TR was quite a fan of saccharin, eating it regularly, and said, Anybody who says saccharin is injurious to health is an idiot. Wiley was not in his job for much longer after that. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. Back over to some substandard adhesive over at the 3M company, and Art Fry, who was struck with the idea that Silver's weak adhesive could be an impermanent glue for bookmarks in his hymn book. It took a few years for the pair of them to convince 3M that this could be something people would actually buy. But eventually, they came up with a design that worked perfectly. A film of Spencer's adhesive was applied along one edge of a small square of paper. After a failed test market in the 1970s, calling the new product Press and Peel, the product soared to success in 1980 as post-it notes. Remember, you can always find the script for the episode and the sources at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Stay safe and hang on to listen to this podcast promo. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in-depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.